0: 1525 was a good year. If you don't know what happened in 1525, I don't know much about what happened in 1525. But there was a significant moment that every person who has picked up and read an English New Testament has reason to be excited about because William Tyndale was a man who set out to translate the Greek New Testament into common English. So, I, I was reading about William Tyndale thinking, for lack, for lack of investigating, like, one man is responsible for why I have the words of Jesus and the words of Paul and James and the gospel writers, I have those in my hand because he set out to courageously and diligently put this in writing so that I can, I can read it. Um... But it wasn't all good news because Tyndale was doing this, which uh, wasn't, was not necessarily smiled upon, this taking the Bible and putting it in everybody's common language. But also he was standing up for things like, um, like Henry VIII's uh, unbiblical divorce of Catherine of Aragon. He spoke out against that and said, Here, here's what Scripture is about. And he suffered backlash for it. So, both of those situations kind of mixed together. William Tyndale was betrayed and captured. He was imprisoned. And then he was tried and convicted as a heretic. The holy, so called Roman Empire took him as a heretic who who helpfully gave us an English New Testament and they burned him at the stake. And at first glance, Psalm 5 seems to fit in the category of psalms that that we have in our minds that the title says does not apply. I don't know why this is saying what it's saying. I don't know how it applies to me. I get no comfort from it compared to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. It doesn't lift my spirits like Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. But I'd venture a guess that Psalm 5 would have been life-giving to William Tyndale as he got closer to that stake, as the reality of this unjust sentence set in on him. He would need reassurance of God's love and favor, absolutely, that God is uh, committed to him in love, yes. but also reassurance of God's righteousness. What if he heard Psalm 5 as he prepared for those moments, he knew what was going to happen, but he hears and sees, William, the boastful will not stand before the Lord. He hates all evildoers, William. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man, William. It wouldn't have taken away the burn of the flames. It wouldn't have saved his life. But truths like these are able to bring immense comfort to anyone who takes refuge in Christ because we have a chance to see that God's righteousness couldn't possibly matter more to his chosen people, his church. So here's the purpose of Psalm 5. just going to give it to you right off the bat. Followers of Jesus must depend on the righteousness and favor of God for refuge in the face of evildoers. Most of what I'm gonna be talking about this morning is the depend on peace. I know God's righteous. I know that his favor is for his people, but it is of utmost importance for us to fully depend on those things, especially in the face of evildoers. As always... David instructs the whole nation of Israel when he's writing these psalms, and, and now he's also addressing us, and he's using lyrics. He's, this, isn't, this is a well-crafted, well-thought-out poem. It's a song, and it leads us in, in five kind of stanzas, and in those five stanzas, there's key examples that shape how we should cry out to God. The first one is cry out and watch. So all of these stanzas kind of shape even our own prayers and show us what's, what's this supposed to be like for me because this is what it was like for David. Now looking back two weeks ago, um, this is the second psalm in a row where David hasn't told us the situation. He hasn't given us any details. Uh, he just kind of starts into it. And rather than us being like, can't you just give me a little bit so that I can help, so help me understand what you're saying? Uh, we can thank God that David's not super sp- specific here. I heard uh, the front man of a band one time who was asked, what's what's the story behind this song? What's the inspiration? Uh, what does it mean? Um, he responded by dodging that question, keeping the background of the song a, li- the song a little fuzzy, and he explained why. He wanted to... Maintain the fact that people in their respective situations could sing along as if it applied to them directly. And that's sort of what this psalm is for us. We don't have a lot of the background, and that's actually a helpful thing for us to be able to enter into it ourselves. Um, And Psalm 5 starts in a familiar place like like many others. Uh, David is just simply crying out, crying out to God directly, and when something's desperate, don't you also find yourselves repeating, saying, God, listen, hear me. I, I know I've made this request, but I'm gonna do it again. I'm gonna do it again because it keeps it on my mind. I want you to know that it's before you, and that's how he starts. He's repetitive to show that he is pouring out his thoughts and his heart out before the Lord in desperation. So you can imagine that it's a pretty dire situation, or else maybe he wouldn't have the same urgency. He's praying, he's crying out, he's groaning. It's verbal requests, it's nonverbal groans and wordless prayers, but he's directing them towards his king, his God. David may be the king of Israel, but he knows that God is the true king of Israel. The God who made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob before him, who took them out of the land of Egypt, who delivered this shepherd boy, now king, out of the mouth of the lion and the bear and out of the hand of the giant Goliath. O Lord, I'm coming to you. In fact, I'm coming to you in the morning and making myself ready to watch and to wait for you. To wait for your answer. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. I need you so deeply that I depend on you coming to my aid right now. And how many of you feel like you're in a spot currently that warrants that? God, if you don't come, I've got nothing. Desperation. So rather than beginning his day with half-hearted requests, David is straining. He's waiting. He's watching for the Lord's answer. The prophet Habakkuk ends one of his prayers in this sort of way after asking God to help him understand, God, why, it seems to me like you're letting bad people off the hook. Why is that? And he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. If it's true, like we talked about from Psalm 4, if it's true that God is a God who answers us when we cry to him, then shouldn't we eagerly and desperately watch and wait patiently for him to come to us and answer our cries for help? Don't just cry out, although he hears you. Cry out and watch. Listen, be vigilant. Author I found helpful that will show up a couple times this morning, W.S. Plumer said, prayer lives in a watchtower. I just picture a tower with You standing on top, looking out, seeing, Lord, give ear to my cry, will you answer me? So that's the first thing that shapes, the first stanza that shapes how our cries should look also. Not not in a rigid way, but just the, the contours of it. And the second is this, cry out to the God of uncompromising righteousness. The first, cry out and watch. The second remember who it is that you're calling out to, cry out to the God of uncompromising righteousness. Here David is in the midst of his distress. And it caught my attention that the first thing that seems to dawn on David isn't God's power in this situation per se and not God's compassion towards David, which comes at the end. Instead, the first thing that David Latches onto about the soul steadying character of God is this, verse 4 For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. When it comes to people opposing David as he seeks to honor the Lord, this is the one thing that can clear his head God does not entertain evil, he doesn't listen to lies. He doesn't commit evil. He won't let it hang around in his house or let it stay for a while. No, the king of Israel and the God of gods does not do that. Now, I said cry out to the God of uncompromising righteousness, particularly the word righteousness, because righteousness and holiness are similar. Righteousness, in particular, is God sets the bar of what is morally right and wrong. He is righteous and he always acts righteously. He will always do what is morally right and is always displeased with what is morally wrong. But he's also holy, and he stands kind of separate from, apart from sin. He will not be stained by evil, which is also, both of those things are really, really glorious and good things to know about God. And if if you're wondering why, how David is kind of using those and drawing confidence from and throwing himself on God's uncompromising righteousness and holiness, just ask yourself for a second this question. What if God wasn't that way? What if God wasn't forever and always committed to what is morally right? What if he was more like the the anti-hero vigilante that we've seen rise to the surface in our movies and stories as the new hero these days? Some ambiguously kind of good-bad person, a heroish figure with questionable standards doing their form of justice. We really like those figures because they're a lot like us, but here's why we should be glad that God is nothing like that. What if God did evil for his pleasure? Does he use evil sovereignly to achieve his purposes? Yes, absolutely, he does. But what if he was okay with personally doing wicked things? What if he had weak moments? What what if he didn't have the power to stay, remain committed to always, at all times, in all places, refusing to delight in wickedness. If that was not true, could he ensure that evil wouldn't win the day? Could we be sure that he wouldn't succumb to evil devices himself? Would he flip-flop from just to unjust, from holy to halfway good? David's appeal is to God's righteousness because he knows that he can count on the fact that God is not somewhere in between It's not left up to question to David. God is committed to what is right. He's the standard of what's right. He's unbending in his commitment to remain opposed to what is evil. He's not going to, if David is staying the course in righteousness, God's not gonna suddenly betray him. And he won't do that to you either. David's cry is such that he's saying, Lord, I need the God who is uncompromisingly righteous. I need who you are. I need you to not bend and to protect and preserve me because I'm suffering at the hand of not just anybody, but evil people. We cry out to the God who's not gonna put up with slanders and liars and murderers forever. In fact, look what David says next. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now there are men and women on this earth whom God hates. Sometimes that's not something that we let in very often, but there are men and women on this earth whom God hates. We need to be clear on that. There are people in the world whom he hates and not blindly, don't think like blind rage or like a tantrum, think laser beam, focused, decisive, holy hate towards evildoers. It might seem strange to say that that should actually reassure us in deep and maybe even unspoken ways, but God's character is unchanging. His righteousness has no shred of compromise, and here's why that matters. If there's any hope for us as Christians, those whom God has brought into the kingdom of his beloved son, if there's any hope for us, God must make enemies of those who treasonously go on rejecting his authority. And then he also has to have the power to do away with them, or else we David in particular would be stuck. We would never know what it would be like for the curse of this world to be lifted from us and for all of God's enemies to be destroyed. He will do this and he will also repay those who injure his people. David is counting on that. And are you aware that we also can count on that as well? His love does matter deeply to us. It's the foundation of how we understand why he's done what he's done for us. But in addition to his love, there's so much more to God than just that one attribute. We can also put our full weight on believing that God must come through in righteousness. I think of some of you who have been disregarded by people, whether family or others that you care about, because you love and proclaim Christ. It might bring you comfort to know that God is sure of where you stand. And he is sure of the wrongs that have been done to you and he hasn't uh, missed those. Or you've tried your hardest to do the right thing in tempting situations and you're still, you were still smacked down for it by maybe a boss or a friend or someone in authority. God is righteous and he will never falsely accuse or misjudge or affirm what is evil and that's tremendous news for us as his people who have sided with him in Christ look at verse 7 next where David shows us the third way that shapes our cries cry out with confident requests cry out and wait cry out to the God of uncompromising righteousness and cry out with confident requests so we said that the Lord does hate certain people, but it's also true that the Lord does not hate his own. In verse 7, we read, to whom does God open his door? David says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down to your holy temple in the fear of you. David's saying, I know who God hates. I know who that he has chosen instead to be merciful to Israel, and that includes me, so I choose being on his side. I will enter your house, not through any other door except the abundance of your steadfast love. I'm here bowing in my distress as a welcomed guest because of you, my King, my God. It's with confidence that we draw near to God's holy throne of grace because he sent Jesus to bring us near to himself. Again, W.S. Plumer says, "What, what would suffering believers do without access to the throne of grace? But with a mercy seat always accessible, what can they lack? What could we lack knowing that we have access there to him directly through a great high priest? It's here where we finally get to David's actual request In this prayer, the first seven verses of the whole psalm are spent being reminded in different ways of God's role, His character, which is worth taking notes on because reflecting on God in our praying calibrates us to the truth of who it is we're crying out to. Hear me, righteous Lord, undefiled, holy, fearful, the protective God who loves me with special covenant keeping love. And then here's his request. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. It actually sounds a lot like Psalm 23, verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. At all, co- at all costs, God, lead me in the paths of righteousness. I'm tempted now to act just like the godless people that you are, you that I know that you are against. I'm being pulled towards rejecting and walking away from you because this is so bad. So Lord, please lead me in your righteousness. Make your path straight before me. Now this is the cry of someone who's convinced that the righteous Lord is the one who knows what is best. Your way matters so much to me that I wanna stay there. Don't let me go off of this trail. Don't let me compromise. Don't let me indulge. Don't let me turn away. Lead me, Lord. My enemies are making following you exceedingly difficult. Have you experienced that before? Whether uh, people in your life or Satan himself making it exceedingly difficult to walk in a path of righteousness, to be led in righteousness, to do what is right in the midst of suffering. Because all I want to do is rage. I want to pay whoever it is back. I want to take them out, or I want to end all of this. Lord, lead me. Lead us. Lead your people in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Let us not turn from it to the right or to the left, but help us stay the course. We need you. Lead us. But here's the thing, David cared deeply about doing things God's way, which is why he's asking what he's asking. Something we could ask ourselves this morning is, how important is it to me, to us as a church, to do things God's way, no matter how difficult? Is that the top tier priority? To live, to work, to spend money, to speak, to believe, to witness, even to suffer God's way? If that's important to us, we need the spirit to light up our path. and He does that through God's word, so that we're not led into temptation, but delivered from evil. Verse nine gives us the fourth way that this shapes our cries, cry out with a godly hatred of evil. We talked about God's take on evildoers But the next two verses seems to me to be David's response to God's take on evildoers. God hates them. So does that mean then that I should too? The Spirit seems to have given David full freedom to write these words. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt. O God, let them fall by their own counsels, because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Is that right to say? Doesn't it feel harsh to say to say kind of the, the least? What about what David says in Psalm 139? I found this compelling. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. I even just saw this this morning from Psalm 58, talking about the wicked. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. Let them be like a snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may He sweep them away. And He says, The righteous will rejoice when He sees the vengeance. He will bathe His feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. There's so much in us that says, I don't know if that's my place. I don't know, do, do I belong saying those things? But here is where we have to make a distinction. David, David doesn't give himself permission to take vengeance on people that he doesn't like or even the very people that are inflicting harm on him. We don't get to unleash our sinful anger on anyone. Godly hatred is built on the foundation that we care deeply about God's glory and not ours. David says it several times in, in that Psalm 139 passage. Do this, Lord, for they have rebelled against you. Do I not hate those who hate you? He's aligning himself with God's priorities. He's confining himself to God's standards. And he's passionately walking in God's path. Like Jesus, David is consumed with a particular kind of zeal. A zeal that God's authoritative word this morning is instructing us to have. A zeal that for some reason I've often been afraid to have. A zeal that is aware when God is not being honored, when Christ is being disregarded, when the worthy one is being shamed. A zeal that wants God to prove himself to be the hero and the victor. It's not wrong for us to be stirred, to hate evildoers. It's actually right and, dare I say, Christ-like. I ask you this question. Do you hate the things that God hates in the way that God hates them? Do you hate the things that God hates in the way that God hates them? It's not, just, it's not enough to say, God, I really hate the things that you hate. It's, we have to also say, in the way in which he hates them. Do you need to ask for a capacity to hate the things that God hates? Because whatever he hates, he hates for good, pure, and perfectly just reasons. For example, do you loathe your own sin? Do you hate wicked people achieving their wicked goals? Do you hate those who cause undue suffering? Now, this could get, it could get dicey in terms of, I could tell you this morning, let's get to work on hating what God hates and also loving others. But we'd have no idea where to start. Paul gives us a little hint in Romans 12, because this is not just an Old Testament concept. First, he says emphatically, let love be genuine. Let your love be legit let it be clear, let it be undeniable, let love be genuine. And then he says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So what's your relationship with your own sin? Do you loathe it? The old man that wants to deceive and hide and grow your own kingdom? Do you abhor the moments of anger that wound others? Do you abhor your sin, hate it, with a holy hatred? Or is it excusable, especially compared to the sins of others? J.C. Ryle once wrote, How much we ought to hate sin instead of loving it, cleaving to it, dallying with it, excusing it, playing with it. We ought to hate it with a deadly hatred. Sin is the great murderer and thief and pestilence and nuisance of this world. Let us make no peace with it. Let us wage a ceaseless warfare against it. That's a big task, but I think we should be willing to go a bit further than hating just our sin. Because this psalm is a cry for help, but it's also within that cry for help, our Bibles are calling us into action even outside our battle with sin. Now here's what the action is not. The action is not, don't take nothing from nobody, show them they're wrong, no mercy, because God's not gonna have mercy on them. That's not the answer. That's not what Jesus was doing when he was sitting around a table of tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't pronouncing judgment on them between bites of food. Hating what God hates isn't an excuse to rip into people. And if you're a Christian who feels the freedom to always be in the mode of taking down every person around you that shows signs of sin and wickedness, you might be forgetting your place. We need to hate as God hates evil, but we don't get to take his seat. He is the just judge. We are recipients of his mercy. James confirms this, James 2.16, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the call to action is this instead. As you are patiently enduring evil, let your godly hatred of evil throw you back on the righteous God and let it cause you to invite him to action. We know God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Lord, I I fully entrust this judgment thing, this this dealing with evildoers into your hands. We're meant to have this zeal for God's glory that says, God has given a message of salvation to the world, but he will not let the guilty go unpunished. What I find interesting is that David is pinpointing that, and he's thankful for that. He's thankful that God is this way. I don't want to catch myself kind of wishing that that weren't true, wishing that God was not like this. It became clear as to some of what David is saying, um, and it started to mean something a bit more this week when we heard of our brother and sister Philip and Lida in Belarus, who, who Brad just prayed for, who together were arrested for church activity during the political crisis going on there. And then And then we heard that Philip was released and that Lida waits in a cell today until she eventually gets a trial, having been detained for over two weeks already. I think we can simultaneously say, Lord, please show their captors the light of the glory of Jesus Christ, just like the Philippian jailer. Open their eyes. But Lord, if not... If they will go on rejecting you and hurting your children, Lord, make them bear their guilt. As difficult as that feels like to, to pronounce over somebody that you, that you know you could very well be in their shoes, it's still what David exactly is saying. Lord, make them bear their guilt. For the sake of your glory and the, for, for the sake of your daughter, Elida and your son, Philip, let those people fall by their own counsels. We should never let our compassion morph into something that excuses the guilty some other way apart from Christ. They are excused if they place their faith in Jesus Christ, and we'd say that even the people who are their captors, we can call brother, we can call sister, just like Onesimus who ran away from Philemon, and Paul's saying, receive him as a brother. I know he did you wrong, but receive him as a brother, but the flip side of that is we can't Just excuse. Our mercy can't look like excusing. It's still, there's still only one way to the Father, through Christ. So ultimately, there should be this underlying fire burning in our bellies as the bride of Christ. A desire for God to put an end to wickedness, to lift this curse, to secure that final and irreversible victory. We want that. Wouldn't we rather that than to have the wicked world seemingly go on unchecked and have its way? We know that God is not gonna allow that to happen. We should care about God's glory to the point of prayer. And instead of personal vengeance, we care about God getting the final say. It's in that vein that we must, you and me, we must be stirred by, or upset by, or grieved by, or brought to anger by spiritual forces and people that oppose and despise and reject God and his deserved glory. We must hate those causing unjust suffering and tyranny. We must be drawn to unspeakable grief over aborted lives, trapped lives, abused lives, oppressed lives. We must, because God has drawn the lines of what is right and wrong what is just and unjust. And we are compelled to highlight and act along those lines or else we're communicating something different about our God and his righteous glory. Church, may our love for Christ and our longing for his glory above all else include both a deep, unsettled yearning for sinners to be saved and a hatred of evildoers who will go on opposing him. But this might feel like uncharted waters for you personally. I know it is for me. But if we embody both of, the, of those things, I think we're embodying the full character of our Savior. Jesus fittingly condemned and spoke woes on the Pharisee, but he also loved the prostitute who is weeping at his feet. He was selective. He was discerning, as should we be, displaying a bona fide love for others well mixed with a clear sense that God's righteousness matters and that he will deal with every evil person because one day he's going to arrive like this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in Righteousness. he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The righteous one here to take care of the wicked. But how is that picture of Jesus in Revelation still a part of our good news? The good news that this church has loved and rejoices in It's because he himself has made a way out of his wrath and into his favor. This psalm is quoted in Romans 3, where the bad news hits us. All of us are sinners before a holy God. And now Revelation is telling us that Jesus is coming for those sinners to tread the winepress of God's wrath, which is stored up for those who have gone on rejecting him. But he's given us the chance for that option to be totally reversed by believing in him that wine press, that fury, is not for you, church. We will see him as the conquering king, but he's not coming to destroy his people, he's coming to save them. If you don't believe in Jesus, that's not to say, hey, it stinks for you, because I'll be in the clear. Instead, that's to say, repent therefore and turn back that your sins might be blotted out. Now is the time, today is the day of salvation before the day of wrath. Repent and believe in Jesus, who is the Savior sent to take you from being under God's wrath and bring you into resurrected, restored relationship with the God who made you. For those who know this good news and have believed in it, the fact that God hates evildoers is so good. Because it it leaves us wondering, why on earth did God mercifully choose me from among the evildoers to be his? Why did he send Jesus and why did Jesus want anything to do with me? Here's a beautiful picture from Titus three. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared to us, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Church, in his sovereign mercy, God has treated us differently than the evildoers, even though we were the evildoers. And we have no explanation for that, except what Ephesians 1 says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. He has treated us differently. And it's this difference that David gets to his last point. Cry out, trusting in the God of uncompromising favor. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So you as a Christian have the option to take refuge in God in the midst of opposition, accusation, hardship, and to experience joy and the peace of protection. David's not simply saying, let all who take refuge in in you stop, breathe a sigh of relief. He's saying, let them rejoice, let them sing, let them exalt in you, God. Let them do it confidently in a state of shock and awe at your mercy towards them. I think I mentioned this last week, but... Uh, it's becoming a favorite quote from also from W. S. Plumer. Great is God's mercy towards His chosen. That tells us something about God that He's merciful. It tells us that He's merciful to us. Recently, I heard a, a Sam Albury t- talking about how we, the church, the bride of Jesus, we are not some hobby or weekend project for Jesus. It's not something he's doing on the side of his day job, is what Sam said. He's uniquely dedicated to his people. He is fully invested to you as his child. In other words, he favors us. He treats us differently than the entire rest of the unrepentant, wicked humanity. He is selective. He is all in on us as his people. He will see his promises through, and he wants us us to know that, and to take up refuge in that. Whenever I think of refuge, I picture a a big castle with a massive door. You're booking it into the castle as a volley of arrows is coming, and in the nick of time, the door closes shut, protecting you from all of those arrows. But it wasn't until reading the psalm that that picture changed a little bit to say that it's a double door, one side being God's righteousness, and one side being his favor. I am protected by your commitment to do what is right and to not clear the guilty and let the unjust go. I'm also protected by your favor for me as your beloved child. It's both of those things that I can take up refuge behind and say I'm safe. They protect me. It's going to be hard for me to endure trials or to be treated horribly by wicked people but what will make it possible for me to do so is that God favor, God's favor rests upon me as someone who's believed in Jesus Christ, who will never be forsaken. And what more could we ask for than that? What more certainty could we have that God is on our side? So, to circle back to the main point, followers of Jesus must depend on, have you ever depended on his righteousness and favor? for refuge in the face of evil. I'm gonna pray, and in just a moment, we're gonna sing a song called We Praise Your Righteousness. It's an old Sovereign Grace song. You may not know it, but it's one of the few songs that that we could find to really sing about and thank God that he is the righteous one. So I invite the, the worship team to come up, and I'll pray before we start. God, I thank you that you hear our cries. And I thank you that you are committed to your own glory, that you're not, you're not overlooking us as your people, you're not looking, overlooking the wicked. Lord, we have hope that you will deal with all of your enemies one day. Lord, give us a clearer picture of both your mercy and your justice so that we can align ourselves with that, so that we can love deeply what you love and hate deeply what you hate in the way that you hate. And also just to, to find peace and refuge knowing that that's what you're like. You are righteous. You are holy. You will not mingle with sin. You will not mingle with injustice, Lord. And that you love your people with an unfailing love that we can never be separated from. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.